remember my dad and mom uh, one Sunday taking after church, whispering to each other and then ha- taking me into the, the room in our house that had my dad's organ, <laughs> like his jazz organ. We had a piano and we also had the jazz organ. So he'd go in and play all these amazing sort of like thick chords. And they started having me match pitches to that. And then they would whisper and then they'd match pitches and then whisper. So I didn't really understand what was going on. Um, but later I would find out that it was because, you know, they were recognizing that I had a, a, a voice, <laughs> which probably wasn't a shock to them because everybody in our family could sing. I mean, everybody can. I, I have a cute little voice, honestly, <laughs> compared to the rest of my aunts and my grandmother. This cute little voice is Audra McDonald. But you may already know that because her voice is recognizable like that. She's a household name. The 53-year-old is also the winner of six Tony Awards, two Grammys, and an Emmy. And I haven't even touched on her activism yet, like how she's one of the founders of Black Theatre United, an organization that works to combat systemic racism within the theater community. Or how she's featured on Singing You Home, a bilingual children's album designed to aid families separated at the border. Earlier this summer, I had the immense privilege of sitting down with Audra for a conversation. And while we don't make a habit of interviewing celebrities here on Homegoings, because this is a place for everyone's stories, Audra intrigued me. Because besides her multidimensional career on Broadway, on opera stages, in film and television, <clears throat> private practice, anyone? Audra is a bit of a truth teller, to say the least. I had a feeling we would just sit down as two black women do and talk about the stuff of life. My instincts were right. I've done concerts, a lot of concerts in a lot of white space. And... What's interesting is how sometimes, you know, I think audiences are, are very comfortable with me and I try, I, I let my guard down. I let, I tell them who I am and I, there's no haughty distance. I, I let myself be me. Public, this is Homegoings. I'm Myra Flynn. Today on the show, a conversation with the Audra McDonald, artist. Lying all alone, I'm thinking, staring at the stars. I wonder, since activist, how can we get rid of AP African American history? when it's actually American history. And a talent we might not have ever even heard. My parents are trying to find ways to channel my energy in a way 
that could be as constructive as possible and to resist the use of uh, medication. This is Homegoings. Welcome home. When I think about uh, the worlds in which you have lived in, the scope is so broad, but I think a lot about the theater world, the opera world, um, you know, it's typically being places, white spaces and, and white, white glorified spaces. And then here you are just, what is it, like six Tonys? Um, were you put into this world or did you seek it out? Um, I... I- I like to say that I was basically kind of born into it. There was so much music in my family and in my house, you know. Um, My grandmothers were both piano teachers. My maternal grandmother um, got her master's degree in music in Mississippi and then was a piano teacher. And um, my dad's sisters sang. Uh, They sang a lot in church as the McDonald sisters. And my dad played a million instruments, as did my uncle. (laughs) And so I was just surrounded by music at all times. And we, you know, we all were put into piano lessons. I think I started piano when I was five, you know, four or five. And I, you know, classically, you know. Um, But the music around the house was everything, everything from opera to to soul, to jazz, to gospel, all of it. I I guess that's why I say I was born into it, because I was diagnosed as a hyperactive child and I was always singing all of the time. My parents were trying to find ways to channel my energy in a way that could be as constructive as possible and to resist the use of uh, medication. When do you, do you know from your folks, like when they recognized that you were having, I think you called it like hyperactivity, like hyperactive tendencies. Did your folks describe kind of what, the, what was going on with you then? Oh, uh, they, they, you know, they've described it to me, but I also remember, I remember what I was feeling and I was, um, it was interesting. I, I was, I had attended an basically an all black uh, kindergarten, uh, which was really close to the high school where my dad worked and where his father had worked, which was on the black side of town. You know, good, good old redlining. So, in the west side of Fresno, where um, most of the black community lived, and then um, my parents uh, moved. We moved into. We tried to actually, we moved out of our one house and tried to buy another house and everybody in the neighborhood wrote a letter to the uh, realtor letting them know that they didn't want black people moving into that neighborhood. So we did not buy that house. We ended up buying another house, um, which was in the the northern part of Fresno. And we switched schools and I ended up going to my my church's, uh, my church had a school attached to it. And so my parents put me into that school that school um, for first, second, and third grade. And I was, there were not a lot of black kids. There was only um, one other black family in that school. And I, I flipped, flipped out. out. 
Um, and I was very emotional and they established a crying corner for me in the, <laughs> the coats where I would just like have breakdowns. I mean, this is a, as a first grader and I cry and they'd say, okay, Audra, go over to the crying corner. And, um, or I'd try and run away from school or I'd, um, I, I, I couldn't focus in class. I'd, um, you know, yell at all the kids on the playground saying, you don't like me because I'm black and all this. Just, I just was very, very emotional, very anxious, very hyperactive. And at home I was singing and dancing and like, as my dad called me, the circus. I was just a never ending circus. So I remember those feelings and I remember those issues, you know. I knew my parents knew I had this musical ability and like when I'd sing in church, I would sing, I would sing louder than any of the other kids in the church choir and they'd be like, oh my gosh, she's so, <laughs> she's so loud, <laughs> you know. So it was just a matter of like, what can we do for her um, to channel this energy, you know. They talked about, oh, she's going to win an Academy Award someday. Oh my goodness, what are we going to do? So that's, you know, I, I'm, I'm, so, I'm so happy that that's the course that they chose to take. And, and so did anybody say like, oh, it, it's possibly because she's like gone from an all black area to being one of the only black folks in the room? Did anybody recognize that? Or did you just feel that and hold that internally? Well, I think, I mean, it was one of the things I was shouting about. Um, but I think, you know, I had, I had another sibling that was at the school too. So they're like, she's fine. <laughs> you know, what's up here? That one's fine. Um, and uh, because I had exhibited all those tendencies, you know, just in life, and then they were exacerbated into this, maybe that's what I, I internalized. And then because I had this anxious, hyperactive nature, that's how it, you know, manifested itself in that school. Um, I, think it w I think they just thought it was more specific to me, you know. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing. Um, I I think a lot about now the spaces that you're in, um, where you've gone from cr having your own crying corner. First of all, I'm very curious if you have any crying corners, self-designated crying corners now, because I feel like we all could use that every once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> we could all use a little crying corner. In those days, I think it was more humiliating. You know, I think about it now. But uh, yeah, I mean, my car as I'm going through the drive through at Starbucks and, you know, <laughs> being overwhelmed. <laughs> yeah, a, a car can be a safe crying corner for sure. Um, but, but, you know, the threat there, right, of, of being the only one of something in a room to being a powerhouse at being the only one of something in the room and really paving a way so that many people could be a global majority in a room. What does that road look like? You know, I ended up kind of living in white space for quite a while after that. I, I, that was like, I think the shift, if I look at it, and this is, I think this is the first time I'm really sort of verbalizing it and, and analyzing it at the same time, that as a result of uh, my parents saying, let's find this put her, let's see if she'll be, you know, do well in this dinner theater. So I auditioned, I got in 
as an alternate, there was one other black girl in that theater, that little junior company troupe. And I remember thinking when they ended up casting another black girl after me about a year later, I remember thinking, oh God, I'm going to get kicked out because the other girl who was here is no longer here. And now I'm here, but now there's this other black girl coming in. So, and in my mind, I was thinking there can only be one of us at a time. So you were seeing yourself as a quota. Yeah. There, you know, so we do little tiny performances before the big musical that would happen every night. But then there was also, you know, musicals and plays that we could audition to be in. And so in those days, um, you know, I, I auditioned for everything that I could possibly do there. But, you know, it's like when all of my, when they did Sound of Music, I, I certainly, I knew that I couldn't audition for Sound of Music. You know, I, I knew that, you know, like when they did Music Man, I knew that I couldn't audition for Music Man just to be in the ensemble. Um, although I did get cast in The King and I as one of the Siamese kids. So it was very strange. As one of the Siamese kids? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Royal princes and princesses. But one thing did um, started to happen as I started to get more and more comfortable being on the stage and, and having more success in that, that company as a kid and getting more solos in the little cabarets we were doing before the show. Um, I w- the audiences were starting to take notice. They're saying, that little girl, wow, that little girl's got something. And I remember um, wanting to audition for The Miracle Worker, um, which was a play that they were going to do. And my parents uh, told me, absolutely not. Absolutely not. You will not play that little servant slave girl in that show. And if it means you don't get to do that show, that's fine. There will be other things for you to do, but you do not need to play that. You do not need to. And I I remember them saying, you know, that's a stereotypical um, role that is, you know, that is degrading and you shouldn't do that. And I remember being upset with them at the time, like, but it's a play and I can be. And I'm so, I'm so happy that they put their foot down in that way. And, um, and as a result of that, I, I think I was raised with a sense of, I'm going to do the roles that feel right for me, not that are predetermined to be right for me because of my skin color, but what feels right for me. And also there was a sense of, and I'll wait. If it means I don't get to do that show because that show is, is de- it feels degrading for me to do, especially as a child, my parents are like, then you'll wait.
And as a result, I ended up getting cast as Ava Perone in Evita at that dinner theater at 16. And people were, uh, the audience, some audience members loved it and other audience members were like, there's a black girl playing this role? What do you mean? You know, so that stance and that way of looking at myself as an artist, thanks to my parents making, you know, forcing me to look at myself through that lens um, in all of this white space. Well, I'll wait. <laughs> um, I think really affected uh, my own sort of identity um, as an artist. And then I'm just like crying on Zoom with Audra McDonald. Everything's fine. <laughs> That's really beautiful. I mean, it's such a privilege. It's such a, it's it's that like, that privilege that a lot of us miss out on, right, of being like, I'm going to be patient and wait out for like what I want, because the world is so busy dominating what's best for us. And, you know, not believing that we know what's best for us, for our bodies, for our for our agency, for our voices. Yeah, for our spirit. And, and just I think my parents were like her being on stage being like, yes, ma'am, yes, ma'am, every night. And, and then but here's the thing, I don't I don't judge. Those are the only opportunities they had. And so I don't, you know, I, I see sometimes with younger generations, how they look at that at that time and go, well, it's like, well, no, that's all that they had. That was all that they were allowed to do. So they found whatever agency within themselves while they were doing that and trying to find whatever dignity as they did that, you know, I mean, because those are the only choices um, back then or, or to not do it at all, you know. I had the the privilege and the luxury. I mean, I was also a kid in Fresno, California, to for my parents to say, "No, we'll wait, and you'll you'll do the thing that's right for you, that's not degrading." You know, our our ancestors and those that came before us not not everybody was afforded that opportunity, and yet they walked in those spaces as as dignified and as um and as brilliant as they could still be. You know. And honestly, I mean, we don't, of course, Gone with the Wind is, is, is the essence of problematic, but some of the most beautiful acting I've ever seen is what Hattie McDaniel does in that film. It's the, she's, a, she's a master class, especially in the scene where she's trying to get somebody to get him to let them bury his child. What's his name to bury his child? Say her neck broke. Mr. Red grab his gun and run out there and shoot that poor pony. And for a minute, I think he got to shoot his son. Oh, poor Captain Buck. And yes, and Miss Scarlett, she called him a murderer for teaching that child to jump. She said, you give me my baby what you kill. And then he said, Miss Scarlett. That monologue is so beautiful and she is so moving. And she was such a beautiful actress. And boy, I wish she had been given the opportunity to really get into play some really beautiful meaty roles because what what a talent that was, you know. I I would hope that younger generations would still continue to understand and recognize and give her her flowers for the, for that and not judge her because of the type of role that it was. Is there any empowerment or self empowerment in returning to the maid role? in returning to the stereotypical roles that we we have always like t 
turned down and being like, or do you have any ex- examples of of trying this out and and reclaiming those um those characters or you know those stereotypes and making them shine or brighter or t- dust the dirt off or more dignified, whatever it may be. Yeah, well, I think that's you know I I you know I look at some of the the heat. Um, uh, our production of Porgy and Bess uh, on Broadway some years ago um, got because the, the 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 Gershwin estate had said to Diane Paulus and to Susan Laurie Parks, dust it off if you need to, so that there's more agency, so that there's more dignity. So yes, I guess to answer your question, I guess is that a yes? I think I think there there is a way that you can step back into perhaps some of these roles and and dust them off, fix them. <laughs> we, I mean, and I, I I'm I'm finding myself being led to a point um, to a, a, a thought. In the way that we all have are taking issue with what what's his name is trying to get done down in Florida and literally erase history and erase the teaching of it. I saw a meme the other day that says those who want to erase history want want to then repeat it. I mean that there's a reason that they're erasing they're trying to erase the history. It's because they want to repeat what happened in that history. So in the way that, I don't even wanna say his name is trying to do that. And there are others and other, you know, states that are jumping on the bandwagon. How, how, how can we get rid of AP African-American history when it's actually American history? It's a part of it. But in the same way, I fear when I sometimes hear like the younger generation wanting to just cancel like the Hattie McDaniels and everything that happened before. Cancel, 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 cancel. That we, we can't do that. We have to honor it and, 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 and remember it and, and um, you know, it happened. There was a period in the history where we were subjugated in, I mean, we still are, but you know, the, the horrors of the ways and the the death by a thousand cuts of all the ways we were subjugated throughout history, our entire history. And, you know, in this country must not be erased. When we come back, Audra longs for softness on stage and at home. Is it okay to go a little deeper and ask you kind of a personal question? Sure. That's right after this. Welcome back to Homegoings. I'm your host, Myra Flynn. Today on the show, I'm speaking with acclaimed singer, actor, 
and activist Audra McDonald about her dedication to finding honor in some of the problematic roles Black people have historically played in the theater world, while also working to change them. For Audra, and many changemakers alike, change starts at home. You are married to a white man, yes? Mm-hmm. How did these discussions show up in your house with a white husband, um, or if at all? And, and kind of backing up from that question, you know, we're in a time that is what I've been calling the post-Floyd era, where this country's in this reckoning space. All sorts of things are coming from that. And I know that the container that I've held my interracial relationships in has shifted. Um, and so it's got me thinking a lot about what's happening in in homes where there's um, folks on either side of the color divide or color line, um, but maybe share the same values or maybe don't. Has anything shown up for you all uh, recently that wasn't there before? Yeah, I mean, my my husband in particular has had, you know, quite the journey in terms of where he started who, you know, who he was, where the, you know, the, the culture and, and, you know, into which he was born and where he is now. That, that, that's a, because he was, you know, raised Mormon in Salt Lake City, made, you know, and a lot of that is that, you know, there were words and texts and, <laughs> you know, in, um, in that culture with things like, you know, white and delightsome and dark and loathsome. I mean, talk about that, you know, I know the church has, the Mormon church is talking about how they've reformed and obviously blacks are now allowed priesthood to a degree that they weren't before. You know, that wasn't, that didn't happen until the seventies, I think, or 80, whatever. Anyway, so he readily admits that at the very least he, he, um, he, you know, he was born into a culture that was racist and, um, and he was born into a culture that fought certain things and, you know, that, you know, I, I don't want to go into like detail, but he was absolutely born into that culture. And, you know, and that being gay was wrong and all of this stuff. So, the journey from that for him to him leaving the church and then the discovery of every having to un in some ways brainwash himself to then falling in love with a black woman to it's it's been an enormous journey for him so he he's been on that journey for a while um so post george floyd um he he's and now post George Floyd, he's also the father of a black daughter, you know, our daughter, um, you know, she's biracial, but to society, she's black. You know, she is, you know, it's interesting because I, my older daughter um, is biracial and she is, um, she, she could, she can pass, you know, she's afforded in some ways white privilege because she doesn't um, present uh, if you didn't know, I don't think you would think she was black. Um, so, and she understands that she understands very much. She, she's, <laughs> she, I mean, she majored in Africana studies. She just graduated at, from Brown in Africana studies. Girl knows her stuff and understands and, and moves very much in that world with 
in in the black world understanding what she looks like and how the world perceives her. But my younger daughter, this is copy copy paste. Um, and so my husband has been the one leading the bandwagon on reading everything he can, understanding all the history, under, um, uh, correcting himself, correcting his family back at home, wherever, in whatever way he can, calling them out. And not, I mean, and his family is lovely. They're, they're lovely, but there's a lot of stuff that perhaps they maybe don't see or don't understand. And he is not afraid to call them out and say, you must learn. So, um, and there's been a lot of, you know, even more self-reflection where he says, oh, babe, I didn't realize that this was something I used to think, or, oh my God, this is something I used to do, or this is whatever it is. And now I see it. Now I understand. So for him, it's been even an even bigger awakening um, and another part of his journey on the awakening that he's had. I mean, just veils have been lifted left, right, and center for this man since he started his journey away from um, uh, leaving the church <laughs> into <laughs> now I'm married to a black woman and now I have a black child. And now he's so in some ways he's um, um, some in some, this maybe sounds strange that sometimes when he's, when he starts to get really indignant or angry about something that's ha happening to black people or, you know, like what's going on down in Florida or, or, you know, any of the horrific, you know, sort of, killings um, or the legislate any of the legislation that's trying to be passed or whatever, just or the dog whistles, all of it. Sometimes I, I let him have the anger, you know, because I get so we get so tired, don't we? We do. We're so tired. And especially as black women. Oh, no, not so early. Am I crying now? We get so tired of having to be strong and hard to either protect us and our, those around us and continue that fight. And sometimes we just want to be soft, you know, and, and, and sit in, in comfort or ease or peace for a minute. Ooh, so sometimes I let him, I give him the anger and he'll be fuming and upset. And I wonder if sometimes he thinks, why isn't she reacting to this? And, and it's because it's like, you hold it for a while and he's willing to do it. And I'm grateful. <laughs> I'm grateful for that. So. Oh, sorry. Oh, we. <laughs> Do not ever be sorry. This is um, this is just so true. There's this whole movement, just a side note, but a whole movement um, that I'm maybe you've seen out there. It's a whole hashtag and everything called soft life for black women. It's gone a little, it's gone a little Gucci. It's gone a little, it's gone a little like soft life means t 12 Gucci bags. But I, I, hey, I'm here for it. If the <laughs> That's not soft for me. Whatever, whatever soft means for you, go ahead. Be soft. Go ahead now. Go get your bags. I saw some 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 person on I don't know TikTok or Instagram or something. Some white man was like, you know, people ask me, 
how am I, how am I going to vote on this? Or what am I going to think about this? And he's like, what are black women saying? He's like, that's how I do everything. About. I follow them. If they say this, if they say we're okay with this, then we're okay. We're not okay. Okay, fine. I'm not doing it. <laughs> Which I, I thought was lovely, but it's, um, it's interesting. And you know, people look, I, I did not plan to meet and fall in love with and marry my husband. I, I wasn't, you know, I, you know, you fall in love with who you fall in love with. Um, um, but I, I do in a way feel that we were destined to be together, you know, when you think about, you know, soul contracts in terms of what people are going to learn. And given where he started in his journey in life and what he believed and what he thought was true, uh, just that within his heart, just because of what he had been taught um, to see where he is now. It's like, yeah, he, he was supposed to end up becoming the father of a black girl <laughs> and the, the husband to a black woman in one of the most liberal states in the country. And, you know, all, I mean, all these things, he was supposed to take this journey and I was supposed to take that journey with him and be a part of that. The, I think the, the constant through line is signing up for the journey with the person, um, whatever that may be or may look like, but also just that what it is to be loved as a black person, woman, um, is layered, is really layered. It is. It's not easy. And it can mean a lot of like picking up the pieces or showing up for that person the way the world isn't. And so it sounds like your husband is doing this for you. And, and that's all that matters. And it's still it's still a learning curve. For, you know, there's still a learning curve. And, and some I sometimes I get it wrong. And sometimes he gets it wrong. Um, but um, we're on we're on the journey. Um, and he is, he, and he also understands that he can't ever be like one of those people who goes, well, it's okay. I can say that I'm married to a black person or I've got a black, Mm-mm. he understands that, that, that is, that is not a privilege that, that part of it. Oh, well, I get to do this or I, I get a pass. Not at all. Not at all. Um, so he gets it and he gets that there's still more learning to do. I know that love is the only answer And the tightrope lover the only dancer I've done concerts, a lot of concerts in a lot of white space. And what's interesting, I'm always, you know, I... I What's interesting is how sometimes, you know, I think audiences are, are very comfortable with me and I try, I, I let my guard down. I let, I tell them who I am and I, there's no haughty distance. I, I let myself be me and I talk very openly about my life and, and I say, and then I talk about what I think and believe in. I don't preach, mm-hmm. but I, you know, the songs that I choose, I sing for, for specific reasons. And I talk about those reasons that I choose songs and why I'm singing the song. And, um, Sometimes when certain people who come to my concerts are reminded that there is still in society a difference of the way I'm looked at and the way they are looked at, sometimes people get uncomfortable and sometimes I have people get up and walk out. I've had people as recently as a couple weeks ago, um, as I was singing a song about um feeling othered 
And it's a song that everybody knows, Being Green, Being Green, sung by Kermit the Frog. And I said, I dedicate this to those who are that are made to feel othered, you know, that are othered by society, that are othered by legislate legislation being created to, you know, sort of erase them, make feel that, that, that who they are is not enough or who that they who they are is wrong. I, I sing this song for you. It's not that easy being green, having to spend each day the color of the leaves. When I think it could be nicer being red or yellow or gold or something much more colorful like that. I cannot tell you how many times, and this is deep into the concert, like maybe I've got four or five songs left. There's always someone who gets up and walks out after that. And I always laugh in my head and think, okay, did you not see what color I was? Did you, did you forget? And I, maybe I'm one of those people who people could just tend to forget that, I guess. I don't, I don't know. Cause you know, I'm up there and I'm singing songs from great American musical theater songbook, you know, most of, most of which are written by white composers. I absolutely try to find the black composers and bring, bring them in there. And, but it's, you know, that's the theater. That's what it is. We're trying to change that. Um, and it is it, there, there is more diversity. It is changing. There's more awareness than there's ever been. So I'm always, I always expect that that's going to happen. And when it does, I'm like, okay, there's still a leap that some people still need to take, you know. Um, having said that. You totally just made a frog pun. I did. I didn't even mean to. <laughs> <laughs> um, having said that, 99% of the people stay. And on the flip side of that, I find I did it, you know, in this concert that I did in the in Wyoming, there was a man in a big old cowboy hat, and I could have ab I absolutely prejudged him, and I was like, huh, and an older man too, like in his late sixties, and cowboy hat, cowboy boots, and everything. And when I walked off stage, and I came back on for the encore, he had his fists in the air, just screaming for me. And then somebody brought him backstage afterwards. And he said, it was, he was the stepfather to somebody who brought him backstage. And he was like, that song you sang about how sometimes people feel othered, thank you. And I was just stunned. I was like, all right, this is, this is why I do it. There's a lot of reasons why I do it. I do it so that little black girls can see someone that looks like them up on that stage. And I can use my voice for causes and whatnot still have more than anything I want to have a really human experience I want us to all walk away from there as humans who have experienced something have experienced like a holy communication and a communion um of of a moment you know where we check our brains with our hats we go in and what we bring are our hearts and we're all made to feel something get in touch with our humanity again not erase who we are but you know find the togetherness and the communion in that and so while there are moments like the people who get up and march out after i sing being green 
there are more moments of the people who are like, thank you. Thank you for saying that. Thank you for saying that here. I've had so many people say, thank you for saying that here and singing that song here and your message. Thank you for your message. Um, and so that makes it all worth it. You make me want to be your friend, Audra McDonald. <laughs> I want to follow you everywhere. <laughs> you can. <laughs> we can be friends. <laughs> so cool. Uh, yeah, everything you say, pretty amazing. Um, I feel like I had a wonderful and blessed interview with you, and I feel like we covered such a, a wonderful arc. And I had an, an interview recently with somebody who's this awesome. Audra McDonald. And I am in awe of Audra, not just as an artist, but a big takeaway from this interview for me as a Black woman is that even if we aren't all famous household names, whatever we are doing, we are all doing so much. I mean, when I think about the Black women in my life, they embody the pillars holding up each frame that matters in this world, like love and strength, hope power. They are the ones holding the world together. Black women are often in the position of comforting others while being leaned on to perform, achieve, and change the world. We are feared less than black men, so we enter spaces they can't, but those spaces are often dangerous, unhealthy, or like Audra's stages, sometimes completely homogenized. We are the wound lickers of society. We are the mothers George Floyd called out for. But if Audra freaking McDonald can straddle being a change maker with being a, a healthy mother, wife, performer, and sometimes even soft black woman, well, then maybe I can too. And maybe you can too. Maybe we will get our shot at softness. Let someone else carry the pain for a little while. And if not today, maybe someday. This is Some Days, sung by Audra McDonald, with music by Stephen Marzullo, and text by the indomitable James Baldwin. It's off her album, Go Back Home, on None Such Records. If you dare, listen to it softly. Some days worry, some days glad, some days more than make you mad. Some days, some days more than shine when you see what's coming on God and die and the day comes when you wrestle away.
days tussle and some days groan and some days don't even leave a bone some days you hustle all alone I don't know sister what I'm saying nor do And the tightrope lover, the only dancer. When the lover comes off the rope today, the net which holds him is how we pray. And not to God's unknown, but to each other. The falling Thank you so much for listening to Homegoings, a righteous space for art and race. It's been a pleasure being here with you today. A special thanks to Kevin Sweeney at the Flynn Theatre in Vermont, who graciously helped to orchestrate this interview with Audra. It felt like a match made in conversation heaven, so thanks for setting us up. And Audra has so much going on. So many more updates, video clips, and causes that I couldn't get into today. So if you want to follow along with her, check out our show notes for a link to her happenings. As per usual, thanks to Elodie Reed, who is the graphic artist behind all of our homegoings artist portraits. Audra, her strength and her softness, are front and center on this one. So check her out at homegoings.co. While you're there, sign up for our bi-monthly newsletter and give us a follow at We Are Homegoings on Instagram. 
This episode was mixed, scored, and reported by me, Myra Flynn. I also composed the theme music, other music by Blue Dot Sessions, Audra McDonald. We featured clips from The King and I, Kermit the Frog, and also a little more by me. I couldn't help myself. Brittany Patterson edits the show, and James Stewart always contributes to so many things on the back end of making this thing come to life. See you in two weeks for another episode of Homegoings. As always, you are welcome here. started this podcast and I love that you called it home goings that it's interesting having grown up with um you know the, the AME church and the Episcopalian church and being so different in the way the worship and and you know all of that happened but I always there was a part of me when I was really young that when I would go to the my grandma's church, the AME church, and the praise and the shouts would happen. Sometimes I would get afraid because the feelings were so big. But now as an adult, I look back on it and I was like, and the, like in homegoings too, it, it, was, it was as if, here is the space. We are holding you in the space. We are holding space for you. This church, this community is holding space for you to, to let, let whatever, whatever fly, fly, fly. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.